Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by the inimitable Angie Tim, Angelina Stanford, and Tim McIntosh, who do appreciate the burgundy, I assume. How's it going to both of you? <laughs> Great. Good, yeah. Tim. David, how, how are you doing? I'm snowed under, but I'm good. How, how is Aruba, speaking of snowed under? No, no, no. Aruba doesn't happen until mid-August. Oh, what? You're, you're a vacation tease is what you are, Tim. <laughs> no, I... I, <laughs> I I've been, been imagining you on yeah, the I beach thought... with drinks with umbrellas. This yep. is Trust me, I yeah. have been imagining the same thing. <laughs> okay, well, so how was you your distance... You me through this week by my imagining that at least one of us was having a good time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll gladly go to kind of like recoup your spirits. <laughs> Take one for the team. That's all. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. How was your um? What what's the other thing that you did that was obviously as exciting as Aruba? Uh, Gutenberg graduated its senior class. Okay. I gave the the graduation speech, and I've been hustling to turn in my grades. I actually turned them in a few days ahead of time, which I'm really happy about. What? Why would you do so that? Now I'm officially. Why did you say? Why did I do that? <laughs> yeah. You're a why college you professor. Why would you do bad? that? <laughs> <laughs> I, it just feels it's like as soon as I turn them in, summer begins, and so I wanted to sprint to summer. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, if you sprint summer too fast here, you start to melt. So we try to avoid it. Oh right, right. Angelina, how's the humidity treating you? Now that you're a new North, new North Carolinian. Um. Me and my kids are literally walking around going, "What humidity?" <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say because you probably. You know where you're, where you hail from. You just, you basically just walk around. It's a hundred percent. Yes, you feel like you're swimming when you try to walk outside. Like you're breathing in a cloud. So this yeah. is just, we're just like, oh, another cool June North Carolina day. <laughs> it really, that's, it's that's only, it's only ninety-five degrees today. I know, but no humidity. It feels, I know, like I'm not even sweating outside. It's just, yeah. Yeah, but Angelina, you're not exaggerating, are you? You genuinely, there's a really profound difference between Louisiana. Oh, profound. Me and the kids. Really? I've been sitting, it's June. I go outside in the morning. I had drink my coffee outside. Like, you know, in Louisiana, you don't leave your house. You go from the house, the air-conditioned, you know, you're from Georgia. You go from the air-conditioned house to the air-conditioned car to the air-conditioned store. That is your life. And you, yes. you, know, you move in between those non-air-conditioned spaces as quickly as possible. When I was still living in Atlanta, I remember one day I walked from my office across a parking lot to my car, and I was wearing a business suit, and I was wearing... Wait, you know, hold, like on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is this going to be another story about Tim sweating? I believe this is. <laughs> yes. So there, there's so much to choose from. Go ahead. But I, I, I was sweating, and I kind of, you know, I like looked i could kind of like twist and see the sweat marks on my back and i thought to myself maybe this is not the state for me <laughs> and immediately crossed the mississippi that's exactly right i got in my car and turned on the air conditioning and kept driving that's right like a, like a smart man but you know you got this uh this cersei fourth of july picnic coming up and i'm actually going to go to this and this actually seems like something that might not be miserable because of the heat like i would not do this in louisiana this would be i would be calling you up like is this an indoor venue what kind of air conditioning situation are we looking at well 
It'll, I mean, How long is the walk between my car and the inside building? Like, you know. I'm pretty certain that you're the only person who's going to feel this way about that event. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> Sweater in case it well, gets a little cool in the gonna think I'm Speaking of people who are going to be at the Fourth of July party and people who would prefer the air conditioning, Graham. We, well, yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, actually, he does. He he enjoys air conditioning too, but he's from Iowa, Canada, and Iowa. But we do have a special guest joining us for this episode, Ooh. where wherein we are going to discuss Chapter Six of Brideshead Revisited. But before we dive in too much more deeply, we should probably bring him on so he doesn't sit there and fall asleep as we talk nonsense. Who's special guest? Uh, the special guest is is uh, one Andrew Kern. Otherwise, what? Not... <laughs> Kill surprise! <laughs> are you, Tim? Are you surprised? I'm so surprised. <laughs> well, that we're for Chapter Six. <laughs> of Brideshead Revisited that we would have a special guest, Andrew Kern. Yeah, well, so wait, wait, I'm going on the record. Give him a chance to say hello, back. guys. Wait, I know, we're bombarding here. him. Going on the record here to say I take back everything I ever said about Tim not being a good actor. <laughs> 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 that was well, well, totally well, welcome to the show, sir. You Andrew, made, are you there? I rejoice in the fellowship. <laughs> 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 you may have made a terrible mistake. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so yes, I'm here. Hello. <laughs> so, Tim and I are like kids with a substitute teacher at school. We're going nuts. I know, absolutely, absolutely. You're, except, wait, who's the substitute <laughs> teacher? I know you're still there, David. I don't know what's happening. So Brideshead is. Uh, well, for those of you who don't know. Andrew Kern is my dad. 99% of you know that, but if I, I'm not going to refer to him by his first name because I might hurt his feelings. But So, Dad, Brideshead Revisited is one of your favorite books. Um, we've said that before on the show, but um, Chapter 6 in particular, you know, is you've, you've said is one of your favorite chapters. And we're going to let you talk about that a little bit um, during the show. But, but why is Brideshead in general such a favorite for you, but you have two sentences to explain why before we t t give a word from our sponsors. I have been thinking about that, and I believe that it may have to do with the opening um, scenes with Sebastian and Charles and their friendship, which for me brings an echo across the years to my own childhood when I think of my friend Eric who is now, I believe, Eric Martin, and he lives in somewhere in Maryland, and I haven't seen him since, David, you were born, and I called him to tell him that you were born, and we haven't spoken since. So I think... Must not have been a fan one of, of children. Reasons, well, you ruined that know, friendship, I, David. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I, I think one of the reasons is because I cherish I cherish friendship so much, and, and he... He drew me in powerfully, so powerfully with the uh, scene with Sebastian and Charles. Yeah, I mean it's not, it's not the beginning after the prologue, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then and then reflecting on the Hooper and Rex characters. Um, the other reason it's meant so much to me is because I do feel that he's giving a very profound possibly reactionary, but very profound analysis to our age. One that if we do not consider what Wah is saying to us, I think we will be lost. 
So I think that's it. And also the third reason is because I get such a kick out of how these people are superheroes of the intellect. Like Anthony Blanche and his aesthetic perceptions blow my mind. Wish I had some of those. And, you know, Sebastian and Charles with their appreciation for wine and, and everybody has this superhero level of awareness about something. And I get a kick out of that. So there's a comic book version, a comic book element to it, I think. Hmm. Comic comic book for the intellectual? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I'm sure that as we discuss this this chapter, some of those ideas will continue to, to come up because it's interesting that you mentioned that you and Eric hadn't spoken in, you know, 30 years or whatever. Uh, and right, this and is... if anybody out there knows him and can reconnect us, <laughs> I'd appreciate that. What was his name growing up? You said his name is now Eric Martin? It, it was Eric Gay. Oh, okay. Um, so... So, he was uh, born in July of 1963. Do you have a social security number by any chance? Yeah, blonde <laughs> and thin Let's at the time. <laughs> so, but it, it's interesting. It coincides, you know, you mentioning that sort of coincides with not the end of Sebastian and Charles's friendship, but certainly a, a change, a, a separation of sorts, and a, um, a certain, certainly a change in the nature of their relationship and then also in the novel. So um, interesting that you mentioned that. Mm. But before we dive into some of those ideas, we need to say a quick word from a couple of sponsors who are making this show and the network possible this summertime. Hey, um, Tim, you have some yes, classes sir. coming up, don't you, this fall with this with Skola Academy? Like that maybe, oh, a ninth, that maybe a ninth or a twelfth grade student would benefit in, you know, because maybe it's I, an engaging seminar-style great books course that they could earn two high school credits from. Is this is this true? David, that is absolutely David, so true. true. So, it's absolutely true. So could you tell us a little, a little bit about those? Because the Scully Academy from Classical Academic Press is sponsoring Close Reads during this whole summer. No kidding. And they want, us, they, you know, they want to make sure that people get a chance to hear about your classes because you know, they're going to be pretty good. So what are you teaching? you got four classes, is that right? Four classes. Okay. The four classes are uh, Ancient Greek and Roman. So they're all kind of a tie between literature and history. We'll be reading literature and learning about the historical context around them. The four classes are ancient Greek and Roman literature and history, medieval and Renaissance literature and history, world history, which is kind of um, selections of some of the really great works that are not kind of strictly within the Western canon. We get to go to, into the Russians, even though the Russians, like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, they are in the Western canon, but I just love them so much that I get to kind of cheat when I'm making the curriculum. Um, and British and American literature and history. And I, I wrote the leadership at Scully Academy, and I said, do you guys have any pointers about how to talk about these classes? Because I'm not great at self-advertising. And they said, well, definitely mention that you have been a classics professor at Gutenberg College for a decade. That would be a big selling point. So I've been a classics professor at Gutenberg College for a decade. Effortless. That, you dropped that in so effortlessly. You, you, you are nothing if not um, obedient. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, those yeah, these courses sound great. So if people want to learn more about um, these courses uh, that Tim is teaching at Scully, or just about Scully Academy in general, because there are, of course, uh, many different courses that they offer, you can head over to scullyacademy.com. That is uh, S-C-H-O-L-E, academy.com. 
com, and I believe Tim, the little ad for Tim's courses is right there on their front page. It is. It's the lead. lead page. I got one in the mail. I got an advert for Tim McIntosh in the mail. Oh, nice! How they found me at my new address. <laughs> <laughs> Someone from the Close Reads um, Facebook page took a screenshot of an ad that they put in um, a program that she was attending. Oh, I, it, interesting. Nice. It feels really good. I mean, seriously. I'm all kidding aside. It feels really good to be supported by the school that you teach for, and I'm not surprised given that. Chris Perrin is in charge of it that, yeah, they offer that kind of support to their teachers. Yeah. Uh, speaking of other people who support their teachers, we also should say a quick word from the Institute for Excellence in Writing because they're they are sponsoring the entire network uh, this whole month. And we're going to have an interview with Andrew Pudua coming up next week. Uh, and we're going to be talking about memory and memory techniques and habits of memory and all that sort of thing. That I, so I spoke with Andrew last week at the Summer Institute uh, while I was there, you know, talked away into a bedroom and uh, recorded that interview with him. Um, and he's going to kind of preview some of the ideas that he's going to talk about in his keynote at our conference in about a month's time. But um, IEW, if you don't already know who they are, you know, they equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Uh, they view it as their privilege to partner with you and all of us on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. So to learn more about IEW and to learn more about Andrew Pudua um, and to maybe even see where his speaking schedule is taking him, you can head over to IEW dot com to learn more so thanks to iew for sponsoring and for also sponsoring um a seat to the summer institute uh just which the event that happened last week so they've been very generous in in supporting uh these these uh these uh, these things that we're involved in and, and our work and um they're good friends of ours so we're grateful to have both them and school academy and classical academic press uh helping make this show possible so thanks to them and please do check them out Okay, let's talk chapter six of Brideshead Revisited. Um, this is the uh, this is the Rex chapter where we get to know him quite a bit more um, with one of the greatest sentences. Dad, Dad, you'd say this is the greatest sentence in the English language. Is this the one that you say that about? Twentieth century. Twenty oh twentieth century. century. Yeah, that's probably that's probably a better uh, probably better parameters. Um, but I don't want to go to extremes and and uh, be unbalanced. Just the greatest sentence of the 20th century. Right. You're not, we're not going to put him up against Shakespeare or anything. No. <clears throat> or someone who wrote in the last 17 years, I guess. Um, so, we, this chapter, in, um, in certain versions, in the, in the version that was revised and updated, it begins part two. In the version that I have, my book is only two parts, and so it falls as chapter six. So for those of you who may be a little confused, it's, it's also chapter two, part one. Um, or not part two, chapter one, rather. Not, part, not chapter two, part one. Um, but this is, it does seem like something of a, of a transitional chapter, um, mm -hmm. because we, we don't leave Sebastian at all, but the nature of Charles, as I said a minute ago, Charles and Sebastian's relationship does change. Um, and we begin to get we begin to get something of a of a new emphasis on Julia and then on her you know her husband who we learned in the last paragraph of this chapter that she and Rex got married. Um, but before we talk about the Rex and Charles discussion, I think we should um, talk a little bit more about the flight March Main clan because we're getting to know them a lot and we're getting 
to know them in some ways that are somewhat negative. Um, and I'd like to, to think about the way they respond to Sebastian. Um, and do we, I want, here's the, here's the very basic question I have, and it, it's a little superfluous possibly. Um, maybe it's a little bit just too much on the surface. I don't know, but is, is this clan, is this family responding to Charles I mean, to, to Charles, but also to Sebastian, especially Sebastian, I suppose, in a fair way. Mm. Do you think they're being fair to Sebastian and then by extension to Charles in his support of Sebastian? That's a great question, David. Because there's, you know, there's a, and I understand there's a number of different responses going on here. You've got his mother, Lady Marchman. You've got the sisters, Cordelia and Julia. You've got uh, Lord Brideshead, who sort of... Bridey. Bridey, yeah. yeah, the older brother. And then you've got Rex involved and um, even Cordelia. We hear yep. Cordelia talk about it. And of course, Cordelia's, you know, we find out that she's been sneaking him whiskey. So she, in some ways, you know, being supportive of him. But let's start there with the conversation there. Do you guys think, what do you think of that? Dad, what do you think? Are, are they being fair to Sebastian? Well, I think that the um, really crucial line to my mind is when. Where was it? It was in a previous chapter. I thought it was in chapter five when Bridey and Charles, or maybe it's in chapter six, when Bridey and Charles are talking about, um, yeah, it's in chapter six, page 145 in my book. Um, it's when Bridey, he says, Brideshead and I went to his rooms to sort out what he would have sent on and what leave behind. This is when mm-hmm. uh, Sebastian is being take, sent down from Oxford. And then they have that um, discussion I guess about. expelled. Is in six. Right, and yeah, and he says it's a pity Sebastian doesn't know Monsignor Bell better and all that. And uh, is, is he a drunkard? He asks, and Charles says he's in danger of becoming one. And this is amazing what Bridie says, especially to Charles. He says, "I believe God prefers drunkards to a lot of respectable people." Hmm. For God's sake, I said. I was near to tears that morning. Why bring God into everything? Mm-hmm. This is the sorry, the, I forgot. This is the end of chapter five. It, yeah, yes. page, page one. It's about four pages. Oh, it's yeah. You're right. Yeah, about four pages <laughs> before the end. And he says, he says, I'm sorry, I forgot. But you know, that's an extremely funny question. Is it to me? Not to you? No, not to me. It's and this is key. It seems that to me. It seems to me that without your religion, Sebastian would have the chance to be a happy and healthy man. And then Bryce says, it's arguable. Do you think he will need this elephant's foot again? <laughs> At this point, this point, right? Yeah. Bride, Bride just sees the world. Bride sees the world so differently. And whether it's because he's Catholic or a bride said, I don't know. But what he's basically saying is, the ultimate thing about Sebastian isn't that whether he's a drunkard or not. At one point, he says um, it might be better if he's a dipsomaniac because that's just an inconvenience that we all have to bear with him. But if he's in rebellion against us, that's another issue. Yeah, if you turn and to Charles, if you tur- I think we should. This is a good time to touch on the conversation that Charles and, and Broadset have in Chapter Six uh, about Sebastian as well. It's a short one. It starts on page one sixty three. And that's that's where he yeah, says, "I hope it's dipsomania." Yeah, he says, "I hope it's dipsomania." Right. Um, 
that's the one I was actually looking for. The, the first one just hinted at it. So, yeah, bottom of 163, at least in my book, he says, um, I, I hope it is dipsomania. That is simply a great misfortune that we must all help him bear. What I used to fear was that he just got drunk deliberately when he liked and because he liked. And then Charles says, that's, that's exactly a, yeah, what he did. What we both did. It's what he does with me now. I can keep him to that if only your mother would trust me. If you worry him with now, keep... But notice... Go ahead. Notice, sorry to interrupt you, but notice what, what, what's happening here is, because you asked the question, are they being fair? Mm -hmm. And what Charles is saying is, the thing that you don't want to happen to Sebastian, that's what I can make happen to him. And what Bridey is saying to Charles is, the thing that you think would be a better thing, that's what we don't think we want to happen to him. And he says in the previous paragraph, after a very long interruption, with Bridehead, I was in a strange world, a dead world to me. And they, they simply do not understand each other. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, crucial to answering your question, whether they're being fair. They, they can only be treating Sebastian within their conception of reality, within their perspective. Mm -hmm. And are they? Well, and that, so, that, so on the next page, you know, he says, Bridesett says, there's nothing wrong in being a physical wreck, you know. There's no moral obligation to be postmaster general or master of foxhounds fox or to live to walk 10 miles at 80. And then uh, Charles says, wrong, moral obligation. Now now you're back on religion again. And Bridesett says, I never left it. I never left it. Yeah. Right. There's this matter of factness about the well, way that... Keep going, because the next line is one of the funniest. Do you know, Bridey, if I ever felt for a moment like becoming a Catholic, I should only have to talk to you for five minutes to be cured. You <laughs> managed to reduce what seemed quite sensible propositions to stark nonsense. And then Brideshead says... Uh, uh, see, to me, Brideshead's honesty, and like he, he seems strangely yeah. self-aware, and he's just so matter-of-fact about it all. It's odd you should say that. I've heard it before from other people. It's one of the many reasons why I don't think I should make a good priest. It's something in the way my mind works, I suppose. I have to turn a thing round and round like a piece of ivory in a Chinese puzzle until, click, it fits into place. But by that time, it's upside, do upside down to everyone else. <laughs> but it's the same bit of ivory, you know. That's really profound stuff right there. But Angelina, don't you think that it's true that that's sort of what Charles does too in his own way? Isn't that isn't he sort of looking at things from every which direction, even though he proposes and claims that he just wants it to be reason? Oh, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. I didn't think about it like that. I just figured you needed to say something, so I asked you the question. Yes, I knew I had been quiet too long. I was about to get called on, like a naughty teacher. <laughs> yeah, you're sitting. You're the, sitting over I'm in the, the corner. I'm in the back of the room reading a co comic book. Leave me be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're reading a, we're reading an intellectual comic I'm, book. I'm I'm still thinking about your original question. Are mm -hmm. they being fair to Sebastian? I keep trying to figure out. Well, first we have to figure out what's wrong with Sebastian if we can know if they're being fair to him. And I don't mm -hmm. know what's wrong with Sebastian. And they're all having different opinions about what's wrong with Sebastian. Yeah, that's a, that gets exactly to think what my dad's getting here. Tim, well, Angelina, I'll ask you first, and then I want to hear from Tim. What do you believe that Charles, Angelina? What do you believe Charles thinks is wrong with Sebastian? There's a, there's a number of different ways of looking at this, I think. So, on the one hand, we've got what, did, what does Charles think is wrong with Sebastian? Then there's what does Charles think the family thinks is wrong with Sebastian? And then there's what does the family think is wrong with Sebastian? And then there's what is actually wrong with Sebastian. Yeah. And that's one, uh, of, the, one right. of the tensions here is there's, on the one hand, there's how do we interpret Sebastian's troubles in ourselves? Yeah. What do we believe as readers? And then there's what does Charles 
think is wrong with them. And the, but then there's also Can all these individual perspectives. That, that's the tension. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. And, and, and that's what I wanted to say is that this book, the, the, one of the brilliant things about this book is that it's a study in perspective, which makes sense because it's about a painter. But not only that hmm. it's a study in perspective, but that it helps us to see our own perspective more explicitly. The way we react to the characters in Brideshead Revisited tells us a lot about ourselves. Hmm. Do you, man, that, that's really good. So, okay, let's take a straw poll here. I, cool. I'm, I'm curious, that's not, not that I'm asking you to re- reveal too much about yourself, but at, through chapter six, <laughs> do each of you, do you have, do you feel sympathy for Sebastian? Like, where do you, how do you, how do you personally feel about Sebastian through chapter six? And Angelina and Tim, you, you're either reading this for the first time in a while or for the first time in a long while. So, um, I'm, cu- I'm curious if your your perspective is a little different than maybe someone who's read it again very recently. I, I, I feel enormous sympathy with him, but I have a hard time. If you ask me to give an account as to why I feel sympathy for him, I would struggle to name it because part of me, uh, man, David, I kind of want to start. I, I, I want to reboot your, your straw poll. Cause I want to, I want to, the question of what exactly is wrong with Sebastian mm-hmm. seems to, I would like to talk about that one first, because that would give an explanation as to why we might or might not feel sympathy with Sebastian. Okay, sure. Yeah, let's go back to that then. Go, answer that then. The ostensible reason, the ostensible problem with Sebastian is that he's an alcoholic. Everybody agrees about that, but it's where the, like what's driving him Mm -hmm. um the idea that it's just a chemical drive has been tossed aside i think that charles thinks that the family's religion is in part or in whole to blame it's the driving force sebastian uh, let's back can I, up. Can I, I think, can I ask you a clarifying yeah, question yeah. there? Do you mean that the that the family's religion has kind of put a sort of pressure on him and led to yes. guilt and kind of a neurosis that has then le- subsequently led to him behaving the way he did and leading to alcoholism and so forth? That's that's how you read Charles's perspective on this. I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah, I agree. Can with I ask that another too. clarifying question? Yeah, Go of course. Do, do you mean Tim? Do you mean? the family's religion as in Catholicism? Yes. Or do you mean the family's religion as in the way the family practices Catholicism? Oh, oh, oh. I don't know that Charles knows a difference, Andrew. Hmm. I mean, I think he has a notion of what Catholicism is. He had a notion before he met the family but i don't yeah but what was that notion because he explains what that notion is in some detail earlier do you remember that sort of dark superstition it was a yeah yeah a debunked myth yeah hey guys i just i gotta interrupt for a second because we got a telegram um Graham, Graham Wait, just telegram. Yeah, no. Graham just wants everyone to know that he was able to land back on Earth in time to see the birth of his third child last week, um, and, oh. and, and he just wants everyone to know that um, he's really thankful to Angelina because he can't hear the baby cry anymore. So it's a welcome respite. <laughs> 
So I'm you know. sorry that I keep waking her up. Yeah. No, well, no. I mean, it's okay because it doesn't matter because when she's awake and crying, he he can't hear her anyway. So, it, you know, it, 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 you know, it, it makes up for it. You know, sometimes you just, the baby crying is just in your head and it, it's, you just desperately want it to go away. And then in that moment when you desperately want it to go away, he can hear Angelina talking. And I think it's like music to his ears right now. So he wanted me to say thank you for that. I better enjoy that while I can. <laughs> anyway. Um, thoughtful telegram. Yeah. So he wanted to, he just wanted everyone to know. Telegram. Um, <laughs> Yeah, see what we did there. Hey, while we're taking while we're taking a brief hiatus, or <laughs> I don't know. Sidebar. I get a feeling this isn't going to be brief. No, no, it is. It's going to be brief. I had computer trouble today, so I had to borrow my student Emily's computer, mm-hmm. Emily Dunnan. Mm-hmm. So oh, if you hear laughter, yes. she's a big close reads fan, and she wanted to sit in on the broadcast. She's of course only hearing my end of it, but she <laughs> might hear some laughing in the background. That will be Emily. <laughs> Just watching you sweat and laugh. Hi, Emily. Just hearing your side of this conversation. That's hilarious. The long stretches of silence. Emily says hello. She, um, a very advanced student, is reading Ray Monk's biography of Ludwig Wittgenstein called The Duty of Genius. There's a little plug. That's a little plug. We can continue now. <laughs> All right. Rain it in, McIntosh. <laughs> I know. Come on now. All right. So let's get back to yeah. one and, of the questions we're juggling right now. Yep. So I wanted to piggyback on the idea of what does Charles think of the family's religion and mm-hmm. the kind of distinctions we were making there. Because mm-hmm. we have a, a variety of uh, sincerities of faith mm-hmm. in, in the family, mm-hmm. right? Um, but Charles doesn't make any distinction amongst those. It's just all all lumped. Like Julia basically is just going through the motions. Doesn't have any kind. Of, at least that's how Rex portrays it, right? That, that it's some. It has some importance to her, but she's not Lady Marchmain, right? She's not like sincerely going through all of these um, religious rites and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bridie's got his re- own wrestling with it. And but uh, I think Charles just lumps it all together as the family. Right. And and I don't even know that he's making in his mind the distinction between the faith and the family culture. Right. It's just in his mind, it's all the family. They're all they all have this dark cloud over them and they're putting it on Sebastian. somehow. And, and, so their Catholicism, that dark cloud is Catholicism. Yes. But it's also in, it's also tied together with the family culture. Well, and I mean, he, anybody's faith is tied together with their family culture. But I, I'm, I'm speaking specifically of Charles's perspective. Like, I don't think he's making all these distinctions between, like, well, if Lady Marchman could just stop being a Catholic, she would suddenly stop being a meddling mother. Like, I don't think those are distinctions in his mind, right? It's just hmm. it's all the same thing. Um, but but then he does. Uh, I, I don't know why I said but exactly. Um, I don't mean to be disagreeing. He says he equates moral obligation with religion, right? So it mm. seems like the depth yeah. of his understanding of religion is, uh, to a certain extent, it's, it's, it's rituals that he doesn't understand, as in the water and the crossing himself and things like that that we discussed earlier. But then he, you know, equates it with moral obligation. Cause it, yes. Yes. And that is so crucial to this book, because, because you guys have been talking about aesthetic theology. Okay. If there's one thing I think Wa might be trying to say... It's that morals have to be considered within an aesthetic context. Mm. They don't stand on their own, and they're not the ultimate end of religion. We live in a creation, not a morality tale. And I think, I think that's crucial to what, what, what 
Charles is experiencing. And that's part of what Charles doesn't understand at this point in the book. Is that is that what you're driving at, Andrew? think so do you think that so i don't know i'm not what i'm driving at but i think it's a good point do you think that um it's for brideshead what's lacking is that is the aesthetic side of it you mean for bridey for bridey like or at least that's charles perspective that bridey's faith lacks the aesthetics of it and so he feels like he reads bridey as just religion being more morality and that he sees probably and that's why Go ahead. No, 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 I'm done. Probably, and I think Sebastian agrees with him, because Sebastian and Charles are enormously aesthetic people. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and all I mean by that is they appreciate harmony and beauty and, you know, I guess even ideals, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point, so I've noticed that Sebastian likes to tell people not to be things. And so he tells, he, he says to, uh, to Bridie when he's trying to argue about whether you can like something and still think it's good if you i mean not like something and still think it's good sebastian responds by saying bridey don't be so just jesuitical yeah that's in chapter four i think and so that yeah and that jesuitical mode of thinking really bothers sebastian Hmm. or at least does in that moment Hmm. well and and i I think it's interesting that bridey describes his uh, problems of faith or whatever um, as puzzles, right? They're puzzles, and he's solving the puzzle. That's so. Bridie doesn't. Bridie doesn't have the Lady Marchmain kind of mystery and fairy tale language about his religion, right? Something he wants to examine mm-hmm. from all angles and rationally understand. And I took the Jesuit comment to fit with that. Like he's being so rational, and he's going to logic it all right. out. So his his approach is almost almost the opposite of Lady Marchman, where she's just like, oh, it's all a mystery. It's all just part of the fairy tale. We don't understand. And, but he's got to understand it. Mm-hmm. But it, so it's interesting then that it's about Bridie <coughs> that Charles says, you would you would talk me out of believing this. And, and Bridie says, you're not the only person to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Sebastian plays a crucial role in, in Charles' awakening when he when – he realize, he hears for the very first time in his life, and I think I did too, when Sebastian says that he he believes things precisely because they're lovely. Exactly. Right? Charles says, surely you can't believe for those reasons. That's a crucial moment in, in Charles' development. And it really seems like it's a crucial moment in his appreciation of Sebastian. Like, it's one of the reasons he has affection for him is because he's capable of believing something simply because it's beautiful. It seems like that makes, you know... It makes Sebastian mysterious in the right sort of ways for, for Charles to want to have a relationship with him. And it's very yeah, and interesting, it's too. Oh, I'm sorry. Too. No, go ahead. Well, it's just very interesting to me that Charles represents this sort of modern, you know, oh, it's all, Christianity is just a myth, right? It's just a myth. It's debunked, superstition. Um, and yet he is repulsed by the faith of someone trying to logically figure out faith which you would think would appeal to a modern man, right? I'm going to give you a logical reason to believe in God. He's not attracted to that, but he is attracted to the idea that I believe things because they're lovely. Hmm. Can I challenge you on that? Sure. I think that Charles is not a modern man. I think he is a medieval man in the modern world. And I think he's very confused by things. Do you remember I, earlier when he, he, he talked about his, lo- his love of architecture and how it developed? 
and he said, in my heart, I've always been a medievalist or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I actually. But he's thrown into I the modern my, world. When I heard myself say it, when I said Charles is the modern man, I thought, oh, I don't know that I fully believe that. But he's a he's an <laughs> yeah, unbeliever in the hooper. modern world. Yes, and he's not mm-hmm. a Rex. He's a he's a he's an unbeliever in the modern world. Yeah, and he yeah, has the dignity, therefore, to be confused. Right. Hooper and Rex don't even rise to the level of being confused. No, no. In fact, when Rex later in Chapter 6 talks about, oh, this religion, it's bunk to me, whatever, I'll go along with it. Sure, Julie, you can go to church, you can raise the kids Catholic, I don't care, it doesn't mean anything to me. Like, So it literally means nothing to him in the point that he's not even going to object to it. That's how meaningless right. it is. It's not even right. a negative influence, it's just nothing. In defense of Where do you see what Angelina Z- says about him in Chapter 7? In defense of Angelina's um, earlier point that that he's a modern man, he does. He's epistemically, in many ways, a modern man. He wants things to make rational sense, and his complaints against Catholicism they do tend to be. They sound very typically early twentieth century. Sometimes they seem to me a bit like they're the kind of things that you say when you think some, like when you've been taught to speak a certain way. He's not speaking like with his full voice. He's like, more parroting something that he's heard. Yeah, or he's just speaking. He's speaking within the context that he's been, you know, given, and he's just mm-hmm. he's taken in certain ways of thinking, certain modes of speaking that are not necessarily true to him, and he, you know, what is something deeper within him? So much as you know, he's adapting to the world around him. But I, I mean, that makes yeah. sense to me. But his vital self, his vital self, is a medievalist. But his sort of um, surface self, self is yeah. is a modern person. And Brideshead, Bridey himself, could do could could is maybe the more modern of the men. Ironically, in a way. he does ironically seem like the more modern man in all of these exchanges. I mean, I feel like there's Between no substance them, yeah. to Bridey. Like I could just push my hand right through him. Is that how you feel huh. about him? Huh. No, I don't at all, but, but I get what <laughs> but you're you, saying. But you've also, you know, I th- I've been actually thinking about that because I think through this part of the book, there is not, a, we don't, we haven't met him a lot. We've only had a couple of conversations and he's on the surf. He's kind of mysterious off in the distance and most of our... But, but what if, but what if what was getting at is precisely what you guys are, are, are kind of saying is that it, to the modern, if you look in the modern soul, there is no there there. And so if we look at Hooper, if we look at Rex, if we look at Bridie in that light, if we look at Charles in his modernness, anybody who's modern doesn't have an essence, doesn't have a, an inner ballast that defines who he is. And so Charles' grace, the, the thing that might end up saving him, is his affection for medieval architecture. Mm-hmm. Because it takes him outside of the, the, the vacuity, the, the, the literal, the vacuum of the inner modern self. Well, speaking of souls, that's a good time to transition to that sentence that you were talking about. I was thinking the same thing, Dave. Um, <laughs> I never said anything about a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> your reputation not, has been made for you. <laughs> we met- <laughs> it was mentioned in your introduction. Um, <laughs> the, so Rex, oh, yeah. so Charles departs. Lady Marchman kind of pushes him out, eventually regrets it, but um, we could talk more about that, but you know, in a conversation of a little over an hour, you can only talk about so many great oh, passages. Wait, before we switch, can we at least just 
talk for just a 30 seconds about the last sentence before that break when he goes back to Paris because that this is significant mm-hmm. when he to me when when Charles leaves Brideshead he he says this and this gets right at what we're talking about this whole modern thing I have left behind illusion I said to myself right so he's I'm done with this family he's out I have left behind illusion henceforth I live in a world of three dimensions with the aid of my five senses I have since learned that there is no such world hmm. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you read that. Yeah, but then it. But then I thought it took no finding, but lay all about me at the end of the avenue. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, See, kind of a, kind of a theme verse. Philosophy and what's that? Kind of a theme verse for the book. Yes. Right. So he's going to be this materialist. What's real is what I experience with my senses. And then he just undercuts that. Because, again, this is a layered narrative. Right. This isn't really first person. This is first person remembered. So you get those moments where he can say right there, I have since learned that there is no such world. Mm-hmm. And by somebody other than Waugh, you know, Charles Ryder is not even in Waugh. Right, so right. So we're looking at Charles Ryder from... It's old Charles telling young voice. Charles, oh, that was so cute that you, you were so naive. Right, yeah. <laughs> hmm. And then he returns to Paris, to the friends he had found there and the habits he had formed. He thought there would be no more of Brideshead, but life has few separations as sharp as that. So he goes to Paris, and while in Paris... Are we skipping that, are we skipping that, for, that separation too fast? Because it's awfully... It's awfully severe, you know, when, when Lady Marchman scolds him and, well, I mean, it's going to come up again with what Rex reports to him, but mm-hmm. it's a very severe separation. And he thinks when he's in Paris that he's never going to see Sebastian or that family again. Mm-hmm. Didn't take long, though. Do you think... Do you because think, life rarely has that kind of separation. Yeah. Do you think... Okay, let's talk about this fairness. Do you think that Lady Marchman was just to him in the way that she responded to him giving Sebastian money? Well, she didn't end up thinking so. Tim, do you, do, do you think she was right, or do you think that it was the sort of response that was necessary, even if it might have been harsh? I kind of think it was necessary, even though it was harsh. I will grant, I think that she has tied up her value in her own children to an unhealthy extent, and that's part of the reason why she reacts so harshly, but, man, I don't know. I mean, it, it, Charles gave him money. I hope in that situation I would not have done the same thing, but I know that I, I, I think Charles thinks I'm, I'm just bringing temporary relief to my friend and this seems the only way in which he can relax i think that would be a temptation for any person even if they're fully convinced their friend is a raging alcoholic and needs help i can sympathize with charles i hope i wouldn't do the same thing but i can sympathize and i do think lady march main is i think she's right i think she's right i don't think what charles did was right but he seems yeah, so differently he I, seems again, I, so different. I do i do with qualifications he, she, 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 he, he sees Sebastian's problems so differently. Maybe it's yes. because Sebastian has played him, but he he believes that Sebastian is drinking all this, is becoming an alcoholic because his family, without without even being aware of it, is a panopticon, and he can't have any actual freedom. And remember that scene where Charles says, "If you would just set him free," you know, and then she says back. 
but that's the point. He's always been free. And she can't fathom. Yeah. Like they're, they're living in two different mental universes. Absolutely so from, right. That's why I said what I said before, that if I'm in, if I'm in Lady Marchman's perspective, knowing what I know, feeling what I feel, I would be angry at Charles. If I'm in Charles' perspective, believing what I believe, knowing what I know, feeling what I feel, I can totally see why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. It, it was a risky to me, move. Yeah, it seems to me it's, this is... They've, this is part of my struggle with this part of the book. That they're just all locked into this impossible situation, and I can't even see how it can be unraveled. You know, they're all have, from such different perspectives, mm. and Sebastian's almost the battlefield of this. I honestly don't know what is wrong with Sebastian. <laughs> like I can't. So you think the new ma? You think the new ma is so intense that there can't be a denouement? Well, Ooh, I don't know. Writer writer I don't know what you mean, Andrew. <laughs> every good well, writer makes you think that. Right. Exactly. That was. That was. Thank you for saying that. The new ma is the raveling. The denouement is the unraveling. Mm. So you know, we've got we've got a raveling that is so intense right now. We can't even see what's going to happen to it. How it can and so be you you end up in this scene where you're thinking to yourself, everyone's doing the right thing, as they see it. Right. And yes, I, yes, and their perspectives. Everybody is living within a perspective. And that's why the discussion with Rex is so important. We can't just say, well, I did that because it was my perspective. We do have to examine our perspectives. And we know, though, that later on, right, just a few days later, Lady Marchmain is going to get new information that will change her perspective of what Charles has done and realize, okay, maybe I overreacted here, that Sebastian actually has been a real handful, and no one knows what to do with him. Mm. Very gracious of her, don't you think? I thought it was. Which, given that we all are always coming from different perspectives and our perspectives are constantly changing and, and being informed by new information is why... You know, hopefully we're coming at our decisions and our actions and our relationships with at least some sort of charity, right? And it seems like at times right, these characters, you know, at least Charles is trying to understand, right? And it seems like, you know, what, but the family may not, for, for their perspectives and their, you know, their good wishes, they may lack some bit of charity. I don't know. Maybe, so that's, think so. maybe that's the English upper class. I don't know. I think they're all trying so hard to be charitable within their perspectives. Look how tolerant Bridie is. If he's, if he's a dipsomaniac, an alcoholic, that would be too bad, but we would all be here to, to support him. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's rebellion, then he's pushing us away and we can't help. Andrew, what do you think Bridie thinks of those two choices is Sebastian's issue? Well, he, between dipsomania and family yeah. rebellion? Yeah. Huh. Well, that's a good question, because I would have said he, he had thought, I think, that it was just alcoholism. And, you know, he saw his dad and so on. But I wonder, I mean, I, does one lead to the other? Um, are they intertwined? If you take away mm-hmm. one, do you take away the other? Or does, is one used to establish the other? Is family revolt used to establish alcoholism, but then once the alcoholism is there... Even if the family's reconciled, the alcoholism is there. Um, then it, then it, it is. It's really hard. Pardon me? Then it is dipsomania after that point. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's been, yeah, it's there now. It's, you're going to have to do, <laughs> you're going to have to do chemical work now. Yeah, right. Um, but it's not, but it's not the source. 
So, I mean, I think, I think Bridie is overwhelmed by this. Bridie's priority. Remember that Sebastian said that Bridie, I think he said Bridie took it the hardest. At least Cordelia took it the least hardest when dad left. And I think Bridie's priority from that point forward is to establish and secure the family name and the, and the inheritance. And that's not something, you know, we don't understand that, but that's not something that one can, uh, again, perspective, right? <laughs> that's not something one can dismiss as a minor matter to right. an old British family. His identity, his being is wrapped up in preserving that family heritage. Mm-hmm. I think that's and, part of what's going on. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish. Just, just, and the world has changed again. The World War One echoes come in. Everything is being lost to this family, which is another thing that comes up in the Rex discussion. Mm-hmm. They're losing everything. Right, and so there's, there's. I think part of the reason why it's so hard to figure out what's the right way to act in this situation is that everybody's operating on so many different levels here, right? Bridie's feeling this pressure uh-huh. that he's going to have to carry the family on. There's this line, and then there's been implications of this before, but then someone says in Chapter 6 that Lady Marchman is essentially saying, here it goes again, another man is running away from me because they hate me. Right. So she's got all this emotion tied up that every time he takes a drink, she's feeling like he hates me. My own son doesn't love me. This is another man I'm driving out. So she's right. got an emotional desperation that's going to be. And so she would absolutely feel like Charles had personally betrayed her, not just, oh, you're not being a good friend sure. to Sebastian, but you have sided against me. You hate me too. And, th- and, and that's like why she's so much. That's right. And I don't think that that's just manipulative woman. How could you do this to me? I was so kind to you because women, women can manipulate with that kind of stuff. That was off the record, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> but I think she means that an opinion it. or an observation. It was neither. It was an undocumented, I don't know, thought bubble. Yeah, let's avoid it. (laughs) uh, Let's be politically correct here. That's right. I'm all about that on this show. But but she's just, she's (laughs) so much emotional weight to his behavior. Everything he's doing, it just feels like my son hates me. Another man hates me. Hmm. Well, you can imagine how hard that would be, especially if she loved her brothers so much. This is why, David, when you asked, what do you think of Sebastian? I wrote down sympathetic disappointment. Mm. I want him. I want him to get over this. I want him to grow up. I want him to become a self that, you know, is secure and realized. Um, but the world around him, beginning with his family, it's falling apart. We cannot, we cannot possibly fathom what world war one meant to the, to the British people. Absolutely. We just don't have it. The, the difference between it, you know, our civil war was similar in terms of the colossal loss, but we can't, we cannot get our heads around culturally, morally, religiously, in every sense. And just the fact, I went over to Oxford, England a, a year ago or so with my daughter. And the one thing that hit me emotionally the most was how much I wanted to be there. But the second thing, was everywhere I looked, every single college building, every cemetery had multiple monuments to the dead from World War One and World War Two, And it was name after name after name after name of people between 18 and 22 years old, just mind-numbing to see what it cost them. Huh. And we're only seven years removed in this book. Well, we're only 100 years removed in real life. 
And that's why right, when Rex right. makes the comment about money and, and the, the March Man's losing money, it's a much bigger comment than that because what he's saying is, right. listen, the world has changed and the March Man's yeah. have not figured this out. They are still yeah. living in the old way and, you know, it's not it's all collapsing on them and they can't see it. And that's happening to them, that's like right. Andrew said, in every, in every aspect and they can't see it. And that's why I appreciate it in the last podcast, Angelina, your comment to connecting to Gone with the Wind. Because it's really not unlike that, what the aristocracy experienced in England. It's just not unlike the aristocracy in England after World War II. It isn't what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Not as bad as the Roman aristocracy that got wiped out completely every two hundred years. But you know, it, it's in, in as I understand it, in 1912, approximately 90 percent of the land in England was owned by something like I think nine or ten families. Wow, and that's probably Jeez. not appropriate, but 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 they don't own that anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, now and cities, now cities just, do. They put train tracks on them. Now nine split. corporations own them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Rex yeah. Rostrum owns them. Yeah, exactly. Rex, Rex no, owns them, exactly. and he entertains Hooper to keep them. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the wreck conversation a little bit because I have a couple questions. That um, David, can I offer a prelude to that conversation? Yeah. In passing, did you guys, um, were you as grossly offended by the turtle with the diamonds in his shell? As, <laughs> as a, wasn't that just the perfect representation of, of kind of Rex's aesthetic sense? Well, yeah, and I was going to say, it's so interesting that that comes immediately without a section break after uh, Bridie's conversation with Charles. Yes, Julius Tortoise disappeared. I love that. I love that. We think it buried itself, as they do. <laughs> and, and took and took and took the diamonds with it. Oh uh-huh. no! I know. I said, "All right, Rex, that cost a packet." <laughs> I love I love Cordelia's response to it. It's beastly. Oh, pardon me. I've put my foot in it again. Yeah, <laughs> she's so great. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes, right? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And then, of course, Rex probably doesn't even matter to Rex because he's just going to go gamble and win another packet as he does in mm-hmm. Paris. Mm-hmm. The fact that he gambles and wins, I mean, everything about Rex is just, I'm a man on the upswing, right? He's yep. the, He's got it all figured out. Luck he's, is moving his way. He's taking the, advantage the of it. The position between the tortoise with the diamonds, I mean, we get all of these wonderful descriptions of the sumptuous harmony of bride's head early in the book and then plunked down in the middle of this just gorgeous glorious house is a tortoise with diamonds drilled into its shell crawling around hey what there's gonna be something well, Tim, about, I, guys. Pardon me, i've got to go return the gift i just bought tim <laughs> <laughs> did you guys catch the uh the reference to inigo jones about the building no no what yeah. So, so Inigo, it was either it was in the era of Inigo Jones or it was Inigo Jones himself who designed Brideshead. And it, remember, they, he, he says, why do you call it a castle? And he says, because in, in Inigo Jones day, we pulled down a castle and we put it up here. And what that means is that this is a very neoclassical, very simple lined, but extremely elegant building. Oh. Not medieval, no longer medieval. The castle came down. But it's Elizabethan Renaissance with this very self-conscious attempt to to uh, out Italian the Italians. Interesting. 
one of the things I noticed um, this time, and maybe it's because we I just spent a week reading the Aeneid, and I'm thinking about all this, you know, antiquity and hospitality and, right. you know, the rituals that come with that. But one of the things that struck me this time during the dinner scene is how much Charles is offended by the fact that Rex's timing is not appropriate mm-hmm. for when yeah, to speak. Gonna, You're supposed to wait that. until the meal is over, he says, and that is the appropriate time. That's yep. when you tell your story. <laughs> yep. after, you, Which is a very old way of thinking about it, right? You eat first, then you tell your story. Rex just wants to keep every time there's a pause or not a pause. He's going to make a pause. He's just going to tell his story. Angelina, do, do you remember when, um, when um, Bridie was talking about how he doesn't like to drink and how he wished he did because because with wine that's when that's for the that's good for fellowship yes and i i I can't for communion right and i can't help but wonder if part of bridey's problem in in was character development here isn't that he doesn't drink wine and therefore he's just a jesuit (laughs) and and the whole the, the you know the aesthetics of wine you remember when sebastian and charles were were learning to distinguish these very fine glasses of wine from each other and that's what I mean by the comic book element of it. You know, there's this, the, the amount of, no, of aesthetic precision and knowledge that these characters have. <laughs> I don't want to say it's pornographic, but it's, it's fantastic. In the sense it's, of an action. It's fan, no, there aren't people outside of, I guess, Oxford, but there are, you know, fellows at Oxford that have that level of insight and precision of, of taste. They're like 21 years old, too. Like, they haven't had... Years yeah. and years of of like learning what they like and learning what they you know what. I actually do wonder if what Charles I couldn't tell exactly if um, Charles had actually chosen the best stuff or if it really wasn't that good because I kept wondering like how do we how do we know that we should trust Charles's taste here? I mean I understand. Well, that's a good question. I mean I felt like Walt was setting us up to think that Rex was going to be the idiot. Yeah, I think so. But I, like at the same time, I'm kind of thinking like I mean. Why do I why do I trust that Charles Ryder, who's all of twenty one years old in Paris, knows? <laughs> because Rex is Canadian, duh. <laughs> I mean, I think well, we're supposed to think. I think that's what we're supposed to think. I mean, I guess so. Yeah. And the and the and the Maybe. term Rex is not a man of refined taste. I mean, that's the way I took it. He's not a man of refined taste. Absolutely. Sebastian, on the other hand, okay. So on page eighty in my book, there's this cr- critical exchange where they're they're enjoying. They've just seen Nanny. And you remember Nanny lives in the dome of the building, which has been divided into rooms. And so, so they're, they're descending the staircase, I guess. And Charles says to Sebastian, is the dome by Inigo Jones too? It looks later. And here's Sebastian's glorious <laughs> response. Oh, Charles, don't be such a tourist. <laughs> what does it matter when it was built if it's pretty? Hmm. Charles says, it's the sort of thing I like to know. Ah, good catch. Because mm. this is contrasting, which, of course, to, to Rex, right? To which, to, yeah, yeah. And when I get this, this is what this is how, when he says, it's the sort of thing I like to know, here's Sebastian's response. Oh, dear. I thought I'd cured you of all that. <laughs> get, get out of the external observing of life. Get out, get away from behind your camera. Don't be a tourist live in reality and that's what sebastian thinks he's doing of course his reality is pretty glorious yeah true architecturally 
Right. So, yeah, so right. just to bring that point out again, that's the sort of thing that Charles likes to know, contrasted to the sorts of things that Rex knows. Right. 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 That was such a great line through that whole that whole conversation. That's the sort of thing I know. It's the sort of thing I hear. Here. The sort of the thing sort I of hear. Thing I hear. That's right, because he Rex doesn't know things. He hears things. He's that kind of guy, right? Mortal He's disease the, and debt. That was so great. But David, I feel like I've taken us away from um, the glorious the conversation. whole point of the conversation and book, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because I because I think this this passage discuss, discussion with Rex, in my humble opinion, as though I could have one of those, is <laughs> I think this is the interpretive key to the whole book. Well, one of the things that I'm, you know, in my book, there's a few, there's just a few physical things I noted about the way things are laid out in my book, which are somewhat coincidental, but at the same time, the proximity that Wa put them in with each other are, is not accidental. So in my book, almost exactly opposite one another are the sentences, the soul was so simple and unobtrusive that Rex failed to notice it. And directly opposite was, I rejoiced in the burgundy. How can I describe it? That's yeah, mine too. And then you get this sentence where he talks after Rex doesn't represent, you know, doesn't notice the soul. And there's so much going into that sentence, obviously. There's the metaphor part where if you want to change soul to soul, you know, all that. But there's also just the fact that Rex doesn't notice he, he, the simplicity and unobtrusiveness of this piece of food isn't appealing to Rex because he needs it to be, you know, he, he can't handle subtlety. You know, the greatest dishes are the ones that have subtle flavors in them that, that find a way to meld together and, and become right. he meaningful. He wanted to add onions to bring the flavor out, right? <clears throat> right, and so he needs, you know, that tells us everything we need to know about him in, in a sense. Um, Absolutely. But then you, and we can also and then, talk about... And then, and then the brandy. Brandy is one of the things I do know a bit about, said Rex. Right. I can't taste it in this thimble. <laughs> he they needs a lot of it. a balloon. Yeah, the size well, of his head. Early, but he needs a big. He needs a, so. So they brought him a balloon the size of his head. <laughs> they made him warm it over the spirit lamp. Right? It's not simple and unobtrusive. So by the balloon, that. of course, they just made a huge, a right, huge glass. Right. What's that well, called again? The, a snifter? A snifter? Yeah, snifter. Right? Those are little ones. Can, but you can, right. can we compare these two paragraphs though? Because I want to read the full paragraph and then of this first one with with Rex's you, response. The burgundy. Yeah, I want to read those two. So first, let's read okay, the soul good. one. That's the one I had marked. So let's read this whole paragraph. So I'll, I'll read it first, yeah. and then Angelina, you can read the burgundy one. So they're eating. Um, he's talking about Mom Marchmain. I, you know, he he's talking about her health, her crack brain religion. He says, um, not taking care of the body. And then I'm going to assume, in my imagination, he takes a bite. Charles sees him taking a bite, and then he re- he reflects upon it. The soul was so simple and unobtrusive that Rex failed to notice it. We ate to the music of the press. The crunch of the bones, the drip of blood and marrow, the tap of the spoon basting the thin slices of breast. There was a pause here of a quarter of an hour. That's in, they just stopped talking for 15 minutes. <laughs> While I drank the first glass of the uh, Claude... Angeline, Claude how would you say that? Claude Bear? Claude de Bear. Claude, Claude de Bear. Yeah, I need to brush up on my French, which I've never learned at all. Uh, and Rex smoked his first cigarette. He leaned back, blew a cloud of smoke across the table like speaking of obtrusive and remarked, you know, the food here isn't half bad. Someone ought to take this place up and make something of it. 
That cracked me up. So that he, bl- he, he literally, up. he leans back, he blows his smoke right in Charles's face, which is one of those, I think, things that's like in the blocking of it. You know, Tim, we talk about this a lot. You and I both yeah. are interested in how you would block a scene. And I, c- I can just imagine, you know, the slow pacing of it. You could, you kind of let this be leisurely and you just maybe lean, he leans back and blows it right in Charles's face. And you can just, I can imagine the cutaway shot to Charles just staring at him as the smoke billows up around him, just like yes, staring yes. back at him without saying anything because the, what, what could you possibly say? And then that's his response. You know, the food here isn't half bad. Someone ought to take this place up and make something of it, which you can contrast with Charles's, how Charles imagined Rex was going to like this place. Remember, Charles is thinking, That's oh, right. he's going to think of this place. As, he's going to go tell all his friends about how he, his acquaintance in Paris, this young guy, took him to this place, and it was the perfect spot. Um, but then it, let's compare that. So how Rex responds with the contemplative response of Charles to the Burgundy. So, Angeline, you want to read that paragraph? I rejoiced in the Burgundy. How can I describe it? The pathetic fallacy resounds in all our praise of wine. I love that, by the way. Wine is illogical, right? Beyond logic. For centuries, every language has been strained to define its beauty and has produced only wild conceits or the stock epithets of the trade. This burgundy seemed to me then serene and triumphant, a reminder that the world was an older and better place than Rex knew, that mankind in its long passion had learned another wisdom than his. By chance, I met this same wine again, lunching with my wine merchant in St. James Street in the first autumn of the war. It had softened and faded in the intervening years, but it still spoke in the pure, authentic accent of its prime. And that day, as at Palliard's with Rex Montrum years before, it whispered faintly, but in the same lapidary phrase, the same words of hope. I want to go out to eat with Charles. <laughs> no doubt. Hey, what I is... want to draw your attention to a parallel paragraph, but, but Tim, you go ahead. I just want to ask a question, but in the same lapidary phrase, what does that mean? I don't know. Uh, Lapid is a Chinese way of saying rapid, right? Oh, you (laughs) did not. not Politically incorrect. No, speaking of censors, ding, ding, Uh, ding. Wait, was that not, was that not simple and unobtrusive? (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Isn't it, isn't it a... A lapid, lapidary. Doesn't that have to do with building? Looking it up. I thought, I thought, I thought it was more to do with like pace. Maybe I could be wrong. I'm, I'm gonna. Look Everyone's on their phone. Yeah, we're all. We're, this it's, is exciting radio. Kind of polishes or engraves gems. Yeah, a lapidary is an artist with, who works with stones. Okay. Uh, okay. So it's like engraving, cutting, polishing the phrase. You know, it's a phrase that's been polished. It whispered faintly. Accent of its prime, and that day, as at Palliards with Rex Matram years before, it whispered faintly, but in the same lapidary phrase, the same words of hope. That's a really interesting. That's a, it's beautiful, and I still don't quite understand. I don't need to, but let's open some wine, Tim. That'll help us. Yeah, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna dwell on that phrase long you know after what it is, close it's reads. A- it's a serene and triumphant phrase, as is this paragraph, because, because <laughs> what, what overwhelms me is he, he says in the second, third sentence, for centuries, mm. every language has been strained to define its beauty and has produced only wild conceits or the stock epithets of the trade. And then he goes on and tries to outdo that mm-hmm. yeah. right, as an author. 
And mm-hmm. he does. He does by writing serene and triumphantly about Burgundy. That's the best but, paragraph I have ever read about wine in my life. But here's the thing. In and of itself, it doesn't... Like, he is... The only, the reason that that paragraph works to describe the wine is because of the context. It's because it's because we're getting because we're learning so much more, you know, because of the con because of the context of the conversation with Rex and this whole story, and that's that's the difficulty. But he has the benefit of of using of creating this wine into metaphor of it being something more than just wine, and 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 you know, if he was just trying to describe wine, he's going to have to use metaphors then as well. I mean, that's the, in other words, it's the, a great it's a greatly successful paragraph because he's a great writer. Mm. Right, I'm just, but I'm saying, you know, he's able to outdo those because he has a specific context, whereas the person who's just writing an article in a magazine that's reviewing wine has a, you know, that context isn't available to them. He's a tourist. Well, yeah, that, well, that's true. Yeah, that might be one way of thinking about it. It's interesting, uh, that paragraph comes right after, um, so Rex says, it's the kind of thing I hear, and then he says, those were the kind of things he heard, mortal illness and debt, I thought. But then his response to those is to rejoice in the Burgundy, which, and then he ends the paragraph with the words, the, the same words of hope. And then Rex exactly. says, I don't mean that they'll be paupers. It's just the, 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 the way he creates Brilliant. all these different sentences and relates them to each other. It's, there's like a puzzle going on here. Can I, can I suggest a, something else in that puzzle? He, he begins with rejoicing, he ends with hope, and in the middle he speaks of wisdom. This burgundy seemed mm-hmm. to me, and it's to, uh, it, to, to tell that mankind in its long passion had learned another wisdom than Rex's. And that jumped me over to page 62. Um, he says how he's talking about a parting early on when, they, when, when he and Sebastian part for a, a short amount of time. How ungenerously in later life we disclaim the virtuous moods of our youth, living in retrospect long summer days of unreflecting dissipation, Dresden pictures of pastoral gaiety. Our wisdom, we prefer to think, is all of our own gatherings. While if the truth be told, it is most of it, the last coin of a legacy that dwindles with time. That's a really beautiful paragraph. That's why I'm a classical educator. That paragraph is the reason you're a classical educator? Or the content? That idea. What's that, that, that idea. idea? The last coin of a, what was it? Something dwindling with time? Of a legacy that dwindles with time. Legacy dwindling with time. We, we have Like the March made money wisdom Mm -hmm. exactly exactly we have a long wisdom and granted that wisdom exploded on the fields on the battlefields of the psalm and Verdun. but it wasn't really that wisdom it wasn't the serene and triumphant wisdom it wasn't a it wasn't a a simple and unobtrusive wisdom that was being fought in world war one it was it was the it was the explosive diamond studded turtles marching around with their bombs all over Europe and the whole world that cost us so much more than we can ever imagine. And there's not much of our heritage left, frankly. 
and we all have Hooper's and 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 Rex's soul. I do. I'm gonna. I should just call myself Rex Hooper. But there's a wisdom there. We've got to preserve it for the sake of our children, if not for ourselves. Andrew, so you're David, the... you got to do better than I did. I'm gonna Andrew, I wanted to ask you about why you like this book so much, and this seems like a good opportunity. And I mean, this is a podcast that is broadcast on the Searcy Network of Podcasts, and you started the you started Searcy. And to hear you say that this paragraph is why you got into classical education, I think you might have been being well, a little rhetorical, but maybe not. But I want to—I want you to go. No, I don't. Farther. I don't. I don't want to say that. Sorry to interrupt you. I don't want to say that. The content, the meaning of the paragraph right. is why I got into classical education, not the words. I didn't yes. then get into classical education. But there was there was a notion that you had before. There was a notion that you had, it sounds like, that urged you into classical education, that probably made yes. you want to become a teacher, that made you want to start Searcy. And it's yes. something along the lines of what we just read. Yes. Did you have a sense that things were, like that beauty was being drained off the planet and you had to fight to preserve that from pre pre prevent that. I wouldn't from have put it that way. I don't think I thought aesthetically that way or militaristically that way. But I think by the time I graduated from high school, I, I had, I had seen so much contrast uh, between what was going on in my church, say, which was a very pious and deeply spiritual church where I grew up and the culture around me. And the, the, the gap was so great, and I knew which one came first. So yeah, I've always, from from college days, certainly, of course I was in college for a very long time, um, but from by the time I turned 22, 23 years old, I knew that the world that was, was the world that over a very long period of time had made a lot of dumb mistakes, but had preserved some beautiful things that we were so focused on the dumb that we were losing the beauty. And yeah, I've always felt like there's a, there's a rich heritage to that. And it's reflected in our architecture. It's reflected in the way we dress. It's reflected in our lingo and jingo. It's reflected in, it's expressed in, the way we design cars, it's, it's, it's expressed in everything we do and, and it lacks we, the most, okay. What, what I'm getting from my read this time in Brideshead is that whatever else is going on, the reason people are seeing things as they do is primarily rooted in what you guys are calling an aesthetic theology that what you love, what you're drawn to, what you think is beautiful, determines what you're going to believe. Mm -hmm. And we have such horrible taste as a culture. We have such horrible taste that we are emptying our souls of the capacity to believe rightly. 
Mm. Plato talks about this in the Republic, how beauty prepares the path for reason. A small child understands beauty or experiences beauty with delight, no problem. But if you don't cultivate that, when reason arrives, when the age of reason comes, he says, then if, if you cultivate it, then when you see reason, you will welcome her as an old friend because reason is beautiful. Mm. But if not, you'll be offended by reason. It'll get in your way. It'll, mm-hmm. it'll interfere with your, it'll interfere with your goals and you'll become a postmodernist, a deconstructionist. Speak- and so on. Sorry. S- speaking- longer answer than I should have given. Speaking of taste. Let's just look at these last few lines of their conversation because we need to get off because we're going long. But Rex offers Charles some of his brandy that he uh, is particularly fond of. Um, And uh, Charles says, I'm quite happy with this. And then Rex says, well, it's a crime to drink it if you don't really appreciate it. He lit his cigar and sat back at peace with the world. I, too, was at peace in another world than his. We both were happy. He talked of Julia, and I heard his voice, unintelligible at a great distance, like a dog's barking miles away on a still night. So two <laughs> questions. What are we supposed to make of Rex's sentence? Well, it's a crime to drink it if you don't really appreciate it. Because on the one hand, it's nonsense. Like, how do you learn to appreciate something if you don't, you know, learn to appreciate it? But on the other hand... You heard somebody say it. Yes. He's totally judging Charles. He thinks Charles is the one with no taste. <laughs> Maybe. Is that not how you Probably. That? Well, I think he... Yeah, I thought so. It, it's probably true, but I think he just heard somebody say that once and thought it sounded clever, so he repeated it. No, I think that's true, too. But this is, this is the sort of thing you say in this situation. Yeah. Yeah, it, it might not even... Hears. Yeah. Yeah, so therefore, <laughs> it's the kind of thing you said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know... It's harsh to say it's a crime, but on the other hand, you know, we sometimes say, you know, I don't think I, you know, say somebody brings an amazing glass of wine or some amazing, I don't know if you, someone's a whiskey collector or something and they bring this $200, $200 bottle of whiskey and you don't really know how to appreciate it. You kind of feel that way, right? Like you kind of feel like you're wasting it if you don't yeah. really know how to appreciate it. If you haven't built up a sense of um, appreciation for it, I suppose I'll just say to use that to continue using that word so it takes time to learn wine for example so if you bring out something from you know there's one of the most famous wines in the world from the 1950s or something um and you know it's a two thousand bottle two thousand dollar bottle of wine you know i'm gonna know the polyannic hieroglyphs on it uh, yeah from you know there's a there's lots of wine (laughs) there are bottles of wine out there that were thomas jefferson's um and they're they they'll go for a hundred thousand dollars at auction um and so if i drink that wine you know i I like wine fine but i'm not a connoisseur i don't know it that well and so i'll be able to appreciate that it's great but i won't be able to appreciate exactly why it's great or appreciate the difference and so in a sense it almost is well a crime for me to to drink that you know unless someone really wants me to crime for you to it would yeah exactly it would be a crime for you to buy it it wouldn't be a crime for you to drink it if you're given (laughs) well if i bought it 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 definitely would have been a crime some committed somewhere along the way Uh, yeah um, because you know what you're drawing out david do you think that if you if you were in that scenario you're drinking a wine from thomas jefferson's vineyard 
and you let's imagine you don't have um, a sophisticated palate, you would want someone with you who does, I presume. Sure. Yeah. Now that would be a different situation if I'm, you know, if I'm there with someone uh, with someone who is a true connoisseur and can tell me what to look for. But I also think I'd want to be able to have something to compare it against, right? Because if yeah. I've, if you know if I've never read, you know, certain great, if I've never like this is this is why, um, this is why it's so important the way we prepare children. I think to read great books, right? Like, um. Oops, my headphones just came out. <laughs> we we prepare children by reading good books to read the great books, right? And, right. you know, we read the great books to them when they're young, too, but they also need to learn how to read them. And they need to learn something to compare them against. Um, and the same thing it could be true of wine or food or any kind of aesthetic. Anything. 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 That's aesthetic. And that's kind of the point is that what what's missing from a guy like Rex and perhaps from Charles and certainly from me this is my moral of lesson for this discussion is how matters of taste are connected to matters of appreciation and appreciation is not quite a synonym, but is closely related to gratitude. And if we, and, and if I had more of a thankful heart, I would appreciate and understand so many things that make me unhappy in my life right now, like my dog, for example. <laughs> and I think that, I think that's what's going on with, dog. with, with Rex. I think that, he for him it's all utility no gift nothing is gift yeah but for the earned. christian we can also appreciate everything is gift when we're grateful for things because we know about them we can also you know that appreciation and gratitude goes back and forth if i know about Correct. the difficulty that someone put into making a truly a truly remarkable meal you there's a sense of gratitude that you have for being able to partake in that or or you know if you understand the effort that it takes to write a novel or read watch make a movie or whatever you you have a, your gratitude your experience with that it contains gratitude so the appreciation and the gratitude kind of go back and forth absolutely well said you know it's interesting that you and mentioned it's a moral it's a moral duty rooted in aesthetics oh uh, yeah yeah so, um, slightly, this is my final thought here. Um, and then I'll ask for each of yours, but it's interesting that you mentioned your dog because it made me realize you used the dog and Rex in the same sentence, which, you know, some, Rex is a dog, sometimes a dog's name in certain stories, like one of those archetypal dog names. But then I also realized that the metaphor we get here is of, of, uh, Rex's voice as a dog's barking miles away on a still night. And I don't know exactly what to think of that, but that's interesting. I'm not sure what, you know, I think we're supposed to, you know, he's drawing a clear connotation between a dog barking and Rex there. And, you know, we're supposed to think of Rex as a dog of some kind. So that might be something to watch out for. <laughs> Could be. Um, all right, dad, final thoughts before I ask for Tim and Angelina's. I'll go for Tim and Angelina's first. <laughs> or one. Because <laughs> you're going to talk thinking for... about a final thought. <laughs> all right. Tim, no, you go. Because he will contradict everything we say. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, that's it. He wants, yeah, he wants <laughs> you, to create a contrast. Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> wants a reputation. <laughs> uh, we've well, mine is a other, professional obligation. We've talked in other on other books about how much um, I like structure in literature. I kind of like really, really fine writers. They have this ability to structure their tales in a way that. Um, reveals and one of the things that we've hit on multiple times or at least i've hit on is the middle point in a story tends to be a moment where the main character goes from trying to, Tim, 
Oh no, did I really, Angelina? Yeah, it's okay, I'm just gonna say I totally agree with that. <laughs> it does, it seems like Charles... Well, I we're, can't we're, then. <laughs> we're, narr- we're closest to Charles. The narrator is close. Narrator is closest to Charles, and it seems like we're having a big shift happen, and it's almost in the exact middle part of the book, just like we talked about mm. in the Gospels. Peter's confession of Christ is the middle part of the Gospel, and everything about the plot changes at that point. Everything about the plot is about to change because... Charles looks like he's going from seeking to understand in the first part of the story to now comes living in the light of that changed understanding, which is not to say that Charles understands everything, but there is going to be this kind of internal shift, I think, toward action now. That's what I'm kind of expecting. Huh. Hmm. Something to watch for. Huh. Interesting. Hey, David, I'll go in the middle here so Angelina can have the last word if you want. <laughs> okay. She's going to anyway, so. Just, 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 just thinking about that, though, um, I did not like what followed the first time I read the book because I loved Sebastian so much. Mm-hmm. I'll leave that floating in the air. On page 152, this is my closing thought, as it were. On page 152, Charles is talking to Sebastian about himself, and he says of the students in Paris, they never go near the Louvre, I said, or if they do, it's only because one of their absurd reviews has suddenly discovered a master who fits in with that month's aesthetic theory. Half of them are out to make a popular splash like Picabia. The other half quite simply want to earn their living doing advertisements for Vogue and decorating nightclubs. And the teachers still go on trying to make them paint like Delacroix. I'm struck by how there's three options there. That half want to make a popular splash. They want to do something exciting and artistic. The other half just want to make a living. And the teachers are trained to still teach them as though they're idealists, as though they have this big vision for life. This This is perhaps the human dilemma, the... Um, a good analogy for how messed up we get, how, how our motives get all mixed up. Because even, even in my own experience living in the Christian world, and by which I mean within myself, I find that half the time I'm trying to make a popular splash. The other half I'm just trying to make a living. But there's this other part of me that's always saying, wait, wait, you need to do something actually good. And that voice, I prefer to silence as much as possible. I'd rather just do something hasty that I can get really rich off of, but I found that doesn't work. And it's all in the context of criticism. They'll only go to the Louvre. They'll only look at the math. These are art students. will only go to look at the masters if somebody they respect has said, this guy's really good. Even though this is centuries worth of mastery, recognize masters, right? They'll only go to the great books. If some late critic in the New York times says one is good. And as a result, because they don't look at the masters, the Delacroix, whoever, all they can think about is either being popular or making money. That's that to me is scary 
revealing and something we have to we have to fight because the again the, the Christian classical tradition is saying along with Ann Whitehead of all people education is impossible true education is impossible without the vision for greatness if we are not great it doesn't matter what we do and I find that to be profoundly humbling bracing jarring Bracing and jarring, yes. In fact, haunting and elusive. <laughs> <laughs> it's always so terrifying to realize people listen to what we say. <laughs> and remember it, because hey, I hey, don't remember. Hey. Hold on, I well, got to say, maybe only I'm sorry, one, David. I know this is supposed to end, David, but I have to say how much I have loved listening to you guys talk about this, one of my favorite books. You guys are almost getting it, and I appreciate that. <laughs> but, now, but now that you've read that sentence, it, it, the book will all lay itself out to you. <laughs> it will open up like a tulip. Like a tulip, yes. No, like a Chinese puzzle. It's just going to go boop. That's right, that's right. I think we need yeah, to be careful about so references to China right now. Um, <laughs> that, wow. was that was a Bridey quote. That was a Bridey. Yeah, that was Bridey. That's straight out of the book. Um, and Inigo Jones was all about Oriental stuff being included in his classical stuff, unless I misunderstood that. Hmm. Well, uh, we are probably setting a record for the longest episode of Close Reads we've ever done. But this, if this is if can there's I a chapter, uh, I mean, you, guys, you can you, blame me. You can blame anyone we, you want. Okay, I, Angelina gets the last word, I think. Oh, well, I don't yeah. know that I really have much to add to all of that, except feeling like, and, I, and again, I don't remember, I don't remember the book well in terms of plot, but it certainly feels like we've gotten into quite a tangle. And I feel like I'm at this Absolutely. point in the book where I'm saying, how are we going to get out of this? Which usually means now we're going to turn and we're going to see how to get yeah. out of this, if, if it's possible. You know, sometimes it's not. But we'll see what kind of resolution really? to this wall is going to offer. I'm looking forward to it. I hope that we can convince Andrew to come back on for the close. Yeah, that was great. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Next week we will discuss chapter seven, uh, which is actually a little bit of a shorter chapter, but that's just fine. Everybody will get a chance to catch up, and um, you know, I think this may be a better leisurely pace for the summertime. So we'll talk about chapter seven next time. I want to say thank you again to the Institute for Excellence in Writing and for Scola Academy from Classical Academic Press for sponsoring. You can head over to IEW.com to learn more about them or to ScolaAcademy.com to learn about Tim's classes uh, over at Scola Academy. And thanks to the whole team at CAP at CAP for uh, for sponsoring and for yes. working with us. Um, also, Thanks, CAP, and thanks, IEW. Uh, Angelina mentioned earlier in the show at the outset that she's going to be attending our 4th of July extravaganza. If you are in the region or would like to travel, uh, we uh, we will be hosting our annual 4th of July extravaganza. Um, but just to clarify, it is on July 1st this year and not the 4th. So it's on Saturday the 1st. You can find out information on our Facebook page or over on the website. It is free. It is open to the public. It is open to... Um, children it's open to everybody it's a great time we'll have a barbecue we'll have a bouncy house for kids a tent for those that need the shade we're going to have some live music with some Cersei affiliated people are going to play some some sort of like old-timey we'll have some we'll have a banjo there and some bluegrassy type music and maybe some hymns and stuff like that um so it's a good time um we'll have some fireworks for kids nothing too fancy that you know legal legal fireworks we'll put it that way uh but it's still really fun if you have young kids so if you are in the area or want to you know drive a few hours i know at least one family is driving five or six hours to join us so um 
It's a great time, and we would certainly love to have you come hang out and meet us. And as Angelina said, she'll be there. Tim, you want to fly out for it? I would love to fly out for it. I miss you guys. Well, why don't you then? That'd be so cool. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, that's it for now. But thank you so much for listening. For uh, Andrew Kern, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern, and I'm saying farewell here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Talk to you next time. (laughs) 